Hi, this is Marzana Farana Sherlock. Welcome to the sixth episode of Just Stories Podcast. In today's episode, we're meeting Ed Bethune, who has got a passion for old railway lines. This goes back to his childhood and remains a big part of Ed's life today. We're in Kokenzie in East Lothian, Scotland, in front of the Wagonway project where I met with Ed. As we recorded outside, you will be able to hear some urban sounds in the background. Welcome to another episode of Just Stories podcast. Ed, I wanted to ask you first about your childhood memory from your first trip on the train. There's almost too many to count. From my young childhood, I've, I've very good memories of going on holiday to Wales and there's lots of narrow gauge steam railways in Wales and this was obviously left a big impression on me, absolutely fantastic, sort of evocative memories of steam and the smells of these engines. But overriding that, when we were there, my dad used to like to take us on to old disused slate mines and the little railways that were attached to them. We had lots of fun myself, uh, my dad, my brother and my mum poking around in the undergrowth looking for remnants of these old industries. An absolutely fantastic experience and I think that probably stayed with me and more recently has risen to the surface again. Any particular picture from that time that got stuck in your memory that you could describe to someone? One of the places that I remember is an old slate mine just near the Talathlin Railway and there's a very, very steep incline. I remember standing at the top of the slope and seeing that a lot of the infrastructure was still there. Old railway lines running down this steep slope and then a mine over to the left of dark hole in the side of the hill and left a huge imprint in my mind. This is something that has run in a family for quite a long time. How did it start? Have you ever been told the story how the interest with the railway started? I think the interest really started. My dad grew up in the Scottish borders in a village called Newcastleton and that was immediately next to the Waverley route which is now part of the Borders Railway which goes down to Tweed Bank from Edinburgh and that railway was closed back in 1969 as part of the nation wide cuts to the railway system and I think my dad and my granddad as well and the whole family really enjoyed living next to the railway and it was very important to that area and when that was taken away the whole family was quite aggrieved at that so there's always been this overriding interest in railways and my dad and my brother to this day are now involved in the campaign to bring that railway back all the way through from Tweed Bank down to Carlisle so they've been involved in that for a while but my interest was always a bit more peripheral I viewed it from a distance as it were but when I moved to Kikenzi an opportunity presented itself to do something of my own. We are here we are today in Kokenzi in East Lothian in Scotland and we are standing outside of a place that became quite special to you. Can you tell me what happened that you got interest in the Wagonway project? The Wagonway project was actually the result of, of my initial interest and also the result of, I would say, me meeting the right people at the right time in Kikenzi to do something about something which I thought Kikenzi needs to do something about this. And what I'm talking about is right here in Kikenzi we have the remnants of Scotland's first ever railway, which dates right the way back to 1722. And when I moved here, people knew about the 1722 to Wagonway, but they didn't really know what it meant and there was nothing being done to celebrate the fact that we had what really should be a nationally important heritage asset. So why was it important? Because it was a road rail. It wasn't the rail that we envisage today. So Can you describe it to paint the picture? If you think back to the 1720s, life was very different 
here in Kakenzi, we didn't have anything like the level of technology that we have today. But what was going on at that time was the beginnings of the industrial age, as it were. There were coal mines up in Trinent, just up the hill. There were salt pans on the coast here, and the coal was used to burn in the furnaces of the salt pans, and they were bringing it down by horse and cart over terrible muddy roads. And what happened, there was a change of ownership in the lands around here in 1719. The York Buildings Company from London came and took over all the estates here and they tried to make as much money as they could out of it and the way to do that with the coal mines and the salt pans was to build what was a new technology at the time a little railway from the coal mine to the salt pans in order to get the coal down faster and you can, more coal equals more salt so they built a wooden railway this was about the first incarnation of railways as we know them today except it was all made of wooden rails and wooden sleepers wooden wagons and the rest is, is history as they say that from that point in Scotland railways developed into what we have today the National Railway Network. How long did it take to get the call from Tranent? took Okenzi on that railway? It wouldn't have taken very long at all because essentially it was a gravity railway so what they would do is they would have three or four wagons full of coal, each weigh about two tonnes and they would let them loose at the top of the hill just with a guy sitting on the back controlling the speed with a brake and his job was to really make sure that the gravity ride to the bottom was as safe as it could be but he needed to carry enough speed down the hill so it would have been coming down at a reasonable rate so I'd imagine it probably would have only taken about 15-20 minutes to get down at a controlled speed Maybe even 10 minutes, you never know. It depends how fast they wanted to go, really. There's a lot of weight in there, so it would have come down very fast. The sound of it would have been quite impressive. A sort of rumbling sound. We've got a replica wagon that we can demonstrate that with later. And yeah, when the coal got down to Kakenzi, unload it. The poor quality coal gets burnt in the salt pans. The really good quality coal gets shipped out and exported down to England and other parts of Northern Europe. You were saying you had a break between like your interest and it happened that it picked up when you moved to Kokenzi. Do you remember what was your first impression when you came and discovered that there is that old railway? I think probably the key thing for me was I came out and did a lot of walking and part of the thing today is that because it's such an old railway route is that it's very much hidden in the landscape and I did a lot of walking to try and discover where this railway had run and there's a path that runs from Kokenzi straight up to Trinent. I remember walking up between the hedgerows and hearing the birds as There's quite a lot of roads around and about, but that little part where it crosses the Crescent Pans battlefield is very, very peaceful. It just felt like a little time capsule, a little zone where you could imagine what it was like in the past. And I guess also to add to that, down on the coast where the salt pans were, at the harbour where they're unloading the coal, but in days gone by, the sounds haven't really changed there. You still hear the water lapping against the sides of the quayside and the boats bumping against each other in the, in the harbour. The waves crashing on the rocks out just outside. It is all very evocative and you close your eyes and sometimes you can imagine what it was like in the past. This is Just Stories Podcast. I'm Marzena Farana-Sherlock and today I am discovering the history of the rail that used to link Tranent and Kokenzi in Scotland. During our conversation, Ed Bethune and I took a little walk from the Wagonway project on West Harbour Road in Kokenzi towards the small port in Kokenzi. Ed explained which parts of the oldest railway in Scotland you can still see when you know what to look for. A rectangular cavity in the middle with two holes for where the bolts fixed these iron chairs into the stone and then the rails would have sat on top of that. And just at the corner of Kakenzie Harbour, where there's a kind of big stepped indented area where the railway line came along, and there's even some bits of iron still attached into the rock, just like this one over here is actually a really good example. That one there. 
So you imagine the rail would have sat just through the top of that groove there and this thing would have been a bit more prominent than it is now and with these little grooves cut into the underneath in order to receive the bottom of the rail because it was a kind of curved shape. So that actually is a bit of rail that's still stuck in there. This is 200 years old, it's still here. And it's just because this harbour's not, never been particularly developed since then. And there's another turntable underneath the concrete where we're standing now. And the railway lines went along that way. They were loading coal into boats all the way around here. The sound of the sea we're, we're getting now. The waves lapping at the rocks down there. If you notice down here as well, just the black rocks down there, there's a very smooth, flat pool of water in there. It looks like a wee swimming pool almost. Yeah, exactly. So this is what they call a bucket pot. And this is actually a man-made pond on the shore to collect the seawater for the salt making. So just behind us here, see this old tumble-down wall at the back here? This is the lower part of it there, where it comes down to meet the rocks on the shore. That is at the back wall of a salt pan house. So the salt was being made just here. The pans were inside these buildings. And then they had the collection pond on the shore, the bucket pot, just over there. And we actually reinstated the bung at the end in order to collect the water. And that's where we collect our water when we make salt today. So the same place that they were doing it 300 years ago. On top of the rocks, just on the inland side of this collection pond, there would have been a wooden platform with a big cistern tank on it. So they bucketed the water out of the bucket pot into the cistern. Then it would run in a channel back towards the salt pan house, which was just here. But the thing to remember is that there wasn't just one of these. There were 12 or 13 all along the coastline here, between here and Port Seton Harbour. And it was the biggest producer of salt in the whole of Scotland 300 years ago. These 12, 13 pans accounted for 10% of all the salt made in Scotland. And there was a lot of salt being made in Scotland at that time, all the way around the whole country. And the 10% of it came from this little stretch of coastline, quarter mile stretch. That's unbelievable because here yeah, between Kokenzie and Port Seton, the distance is almost non-existing. Most of them were at this point here, there was seven or eight of them were here and then another couple just beyond the little boat shore that's beyond us there. This was serious industry, this was the biggest industrial centre in the whole of Scotland. Salt was the biggest industry and this was the biggest producer. A lot of money being made by the people at the top, the landowners, and the landowners were of course a London-based company, so maybe not a lot's changed. Sounds like it, yep. <laughs> In the top of these rocks over here, there's um, lots of little post holes cut into the rock where the supports for this wooden platform would have been. We've done a GPS survey of all these rocks as well, thanks to Wessex Archaeology, who help us out on occasion. We've got GPS survey, so we've got all the archaeological features that are recordable there, and from that we've been able to plot out exactly what was going on here. That is really impressive, because if you came and stood here and didn't know anything about the area, you wouldn't suspect it. You might think that this part of the wall might have been some house but you wouldn't I wouldn't suspect that there was such a huge industry looking also at the size of the harbour. The harbour today is a very small harbour by today's standards but if you consider that this was what we see today was built in 1833. This was actually a, a really decent sized harbour at that time and it's obviously not on the scale of somewhere like Leith but this harbour in particular at the heart of the kind of industrial operations that were going on in the, in the early 19th century. The original wagon way actually went to, the, the wooden one went to Port Seton Harbour along the road. There's obviously no trace of it left there now and the Port Seton Harbour we see today is a newer harbour than that. So there's, the harbours have been destroyed by storms and 
rebuilt at various points over time and the two harbours we have today are relatively modern in the general scheme of things albeit that they're both well over 100 years old if not closer to 200. The traces of all this industry is there to see if you know what you're looking for Um, and that's been a process of discovery for me as well. And it is fascinating because now whenever I will be around any harbour I will probably look for the slabs. There's no guarantee you'll find it every harbour but if you are planning to go to harbour it's well worth going on the National Library of Scotland maps website where you can have a look at uh, maps going back to detailed maps going back to 1850s um, and you'll be able to see if there were any old railway lines and any old industries there at that time and then you can have a start to have a look around there's another pair of sleeper blocks there and there was a siding going up the way up through there and around the corner. So today up through there it means which street it would go to? Well this it's not really a street as mm-hmm. such it's the sort of pathway that leads round past the back of the British Legion at, at Kakenzie. If you're at the harbour you can see a kind of an old car park and that kind of thing so there were vi- a network of, of wagonway sidings crisscrossing that area along the back of where all the salt pan buildings would have been right on the coastline. A lot of it is gone but there are hints there. The key thing is look for rectangular stones with a little cavity in the top and uh, you're on the track of a wagon just been looking at the sleeper blocks down there and if they kind of fizzle out here because they've been covered over but as we walk back across there there's a under this section we're walking on now is a turntable the ring on which the turntable would have spun and the cavity circular cavity so we uncovered all this a couple of years ago and it was remarkable that it still survived and then underneath this tarmac road the line continued away up the hill and if you're coming down to Kakenzie Harbour from the main road it's down past Kakenzie House on West Harbour Road past Dixon's Fishmongers and then straight down the hill onto the harbour quayside and you're, you're basically walking the route of the railway that whole way. What was the table? So the wagons were turned over there but was there also a point that the coal was getting yeah, so, into? So the wagons were, you would spin the wagon 90 degrees and roll it onto a tipper and the tipper would angle the wagon and the, the coal would shoot out the door at the end of the wagon into a hopper which would then be loaded into the boats waiting for to export the good quality coal. Where was it exported to? Was it all over Britain or did it go to Europe as well? All over Britain but there was trade going on with Europe from this port. I mean the harbours around here were looking further back part of the Hanseatic League and the trading network associated with that hundreds of years before. It would appear that from the records that we've seen that the trade was still going on with the same ports from Sweden to northern Germany and we were bringing iron from Sweden potentially coal was going back the other way that's a whole other research project which I might get around to one day and if you do let us know I will, I will, I certainly will this is Just Stories Podcast I'm Marjana Farana Sherlock and today I've got the pleasure to speak with Ed Bethune about the oldest railway in Scotland we have already taken a walk down memory lane and now it's time to discover the tastes of this old rail. We will hear why bull's blood played a big role in the production of salt. What would be the first taste that you would say it's familiar to, especially the railway that led from Tranent to Kokenzi? If you're thinking in terms of taste, it's kind of, it probably didn't happen immediately. But once we'd got the Wagonway project started up, one of the things that we wanted to do was an archaeological dig to try and look for remnants of the Wagonway. Alongside that, we decided to do some experimental archaeology and built a replica salt pan, which is still around at Kokenzi House today. We operate that regularly. The first real taste that linked present day to the wagonway 
was when we made our first batch of salt and tasting that with got some chips and put some put the salt on absolutely amazing to think that we've made salt in exactly the same way as they did 300 years ago and we had that in our hands and obviously in our mouths and tasted it absolutely fantastic and I think a real achievement for the whole team that were involved in that bringing back the salt making industry to East Lothian. And why salt was so important at that point where the railway existed it was 18th century can you tell a wee bit more of that history? If you imagine that 300 years ago nobody had fridges nobody had freezers the way of preserving food was to salt it pack fish into barrels and salt it down and that would preserve your meats and fishes through the winter so that you could you know enjoy a good diet all year round they were also using salt for medical purposes they were using it in experiments scientific experiments the byproducts of salt making magnesium and calcium salts that come out of the water before the salt crystals they were using them for, for experiments so there was lots of things going on there that salt was very very important for but the overriding one is to preserve food when the salt and the railway stopped so the railway we know it was built in 1722 and in various incarnations it was relayed in 1815 with iron rails instead of wooden ones and then later on towards the end of the 19th century about 1875 the narrow gauge of the railway was scrapped and part of the route was used they relayed it as an extension off the main line that we know today and parts of that railway carried on in use right the way through to 1962 some of it was used as a coal siding by the national coal board and it was around about that time that the salt industry fizzled out as well. In Kakenzi, it was around the 1930s or 40s that the salt industry finally shut down. But along the road in Preston Pans, the industry carried on right through to the 1960s. And in fact, in our little museum today, we've got a bag of the last batch of salt that was ever made at Preston Pans. So it's not that long ago that the salt industry was still going. And I think what really put paid to it, there was a, one of the pans developed a hole in the bottom and the skill set of local trades wasn't there to actually repair it so the whole thing folded at that point and you know nowadays we use different technologies to mass produce salt the factory processes that we've got today are very very different the one thing that has been lost i think is the taste of the sea that you get with the salt you've mentioned that you've made salt in that way can people access workshops here or was it just one off adventure for the team we make salt as often as we can usually in non-pandemic times we do it once a month people can get in touch and they can come along and uh, do a workshop for the day for a small price 20 pounds for the day is not too bad you get a batch of the salt that you've made to go away with as well uh, it's a really good experience nice day out great chat and you learn a lot a lot doing it and uh, yeah I'd recommend it to anybody and I can see the smile on your face can you describe the process how does it go do you take water from the sea is it as simple in essence it is that simple you, you take seawater straight out of the fourth and you put it in we've got a stainless steel pan back in the day it would have been an iron pan but stainless steel is a bit more robust for today's purposes and it's about six foot long by three foot wide take about 200 litres of water. In essence, yes, you just boil the seawater and eventually you'd be left with salt. But because there's lots of things floating about in the sea that we don't want in our finished salt, there's various things that we do to help purify it along the way and take out all the little bits of biological matter that are floating around you. You've got um, everything from seaweed through to plankton and all sorts of things that are living in the sea and floating around in the sea. So believe it or not, what you can use is you can either use egg white or you can use rancid bull's blood bull's blood obviously in this day and age bull's blood is harder to come by we don't particularly want buckets of rancid blood lying around so we use egg white and both these methods were used hundreds of years ago in order to purify the water and what that does is it both those items have albumin in them and that's a coagulant and when you boil it in amongst the brine it forms a kind of meringue or scum on the surface 
and that draws all the impurities in there, everything clings to it. And then you can skim it off the surface, leaving behind this beautifully clear liquid, which is essentially still the seawater, but with all the nasties taken out. And from that, you do the, repeat that process four times in order to make sure you've got everything out of the water that you don't want in it. And then on the last boil, you take it down to a simmer. It's, it's a sort of mesmeric process, and the last bit takes about two or three hours. The trick at that point is managing the fire so that you don't overboil it or you don't go too cold. So you just got this light simmer on the water and it reduces down and reduces down and all the, the H2O is evaporating into the air and then yet slowly crystals start to form. And the slower you do this, the better because then you get those lovely lozenge shaped crystals. Once the water's boiled right down, you can then start skimming the salt out in lovely big flakes. And you know, it's great. As I say, great on chips, great in your curry, whatever you want to put it in. Absolutely fantastic and adds something to any meal. I now want to go and try it. So maybe when the project is reopen, I will visit and see how it is done. And we've got the tastes, we've got the sounds. What was the first picture that you related to the railway? So when I first moved to Kikenzi, it was a little house just around the corner from the harbour. And I remember thinking... I must look into what the history of this place is. And I've, I first started looking at the history of my house. And one of the chaps that lived in my house uh, was a fisherman. So I thought, I'll go and have a look around the harbour and see what history is left around there to see. Because I think I always think one of the best ways of finding out what happened in days gone by is just go and look about you. And there's clues in the landscape. I went round to the harbour and probably the first picture that struck me is I looked at the harbour at Kikenzi and I just thought this hasn't changed much for about 150 years. And so you could really get the sense of that of that this was an old place with a bit of history. And then I, I obviously discovered through reading a few bits and bobs that rumour had it that Scotland's first railway used to run to this harbour. And it later transpired that, yes, Kikenzie Harbour was part of that railway at one stage. But then that my research took me on a journey that led me to realise that it wasn't quite as simple as a railway line from A to B. It had evolved over time and there were slightly different routes to it at different points in time. It was a fascinating kind of personal project for a while and as I say, I bumped into a few people around here that were, had a similar interest and eventually we decided to set up a heritage group in order to better celebrate the history of it uh, through archaeology and getting the local schools involved and various other community events. It sounds like you built community around that project, so can you talk us through the archaeology, like what were the first baby steps that you've taken to start the heritage group? apart from getting people who were really passionate and interested on board? It all actually started, um, it was must be four years ago in November. There's a couple of local people, Andrew Crummy, uh, who's the artist behind the Great Tapestry of Scotland, Alan Braby, who's a local archaeologist, and Gareth Jones, who's a, a conservation architect, all live in the village. They organised a small history walk along the coast. I knew Gareth and Andrew already, so it was a group of about... 12 or 13 of us went for a walk from Port Seaton Links along to Kikenzie Harbour taking all the coastal heritage that was on view because these guys had a real passion for it. They'd been exploring for a few years and they knew various points of interest on the coast. Everything from a Napoleonic target range out in the sea which you can get to at low tide so we started there and then we worked our way along past the salt pans and to Kikenzie Harbour. And when we got to Kikenzie Harbour because the chaps knew I'd been doing a bit of research into the wagonway. They asked me to chip in with a bit of information. So I was explaining to people what I'd discovered about the about the wagonway and a few people basically stuck their hands up and said we, we need to go and have a pint and talk about this and see what can be done. And it all really started from there. 
And as I say, over the last few years, the project's grown and grown. We've done various archaeological digs. The way we got into that was because we had Alan Braby, archaeologist, on board with the project. And through him, we were able to have a good dialogue with the county archaeologist with East Lothian Council. Between all them, they were able to guide us in putting on a community dig and hooking in with East Lothian Council's archaeology festival, which takes place every September. The archaeology we found, thankfully, through good sources and research we were able to target trenches so basically everywhere we've dug we've found things which is really nice so on the quay side in particular at Kikenzie we found the remnants of the old railway are still under the surface stone sleepers with the fixings for the rails and a, the remains of a turntable as well uh, where they, it's basically you roll a wagon onto a circular plate which then spins and you can send it off on another track so that's still under there. That's amazing. Can you describe the walk? If somebody came to Kokenzie and wanted to follow the railway, where do they go? Because loads of old railway tracks have been transferred into now walking paths with bits and bobs of history being introduced to people. The best place to start is actually Kokenzie Harbour, not Port Seton Harbour. There's, there's two harbours in the town. Port Seton Harbour is further to the east, and that's the working harbour. But Kokenzie Harbour, the western end of the town, and if you go to the harbour you'll see on the lampposts at the harbour there's a blue way marker which will direct you along the route and there's also a little QR code where you can get your smartphone and download a guide and it will GPS guide you along the route giving you all the information about the history of the railway along the way and the blue way markers will lead you all the way up to Trenent so there's uh, quite easy to follow and there's, there's good footpaths all the way oh, a couple of roads to cross but generally if you've got the app and follow the way markers it's a, it's a really easy easy walk and you can get all the history along the way. Just going back a wee bit to 1960s, what was the main reason for closing the rails? What I'll actually do is I'll take it a little bit further back. The narrow gauge railway that was originally built back in 1722 and went through its various incarnations. When we get to 1875, the section of railway track at Kakenzie is cut off from the part further to the south where the North British Railway, which is now the East Coast Main Line, cuts through the landscape. And some of the tracks at Kakenzie Harbour remained in situ for 10 or 20 years after that and they were used for just moving stuff around the quayside. But what happened up at the Trenent end near the, the North British Railway was that they started using the route for, they built these standard gauge full-size railway sidings using the old route and they still used it for moving coal around up there. And I think what really happened when it fizzled out in the mid-20th century was coal was being mined in other places and essentially the little mines around Trenent had run their course and they were now doing larger scale open cast coal mines just further to the north and they were bringing coal in from other parts of the UK as well so it was really that the focus of the coal industry shifted away and the salt industry on the coast was dying a death as well and so those old industries the way they were set up it was kind of old-fashioned and not as effective as the large-scale modern stuff that was coming in so it's kind of the infrastructure here got left behind really by advancement of technology. That makes sense but another question that is brewing in my head is around the railway paths. Do you know what happens that some of them are turned into pathways and the others are completely forgotten? Yeah, it's hard to say really. There's quite a lot of obviously railway paths in East Lothian, along Nidri and Ormiston, there's various ones around there and obviously this very old one between Trinet and Kikenzie. And I think where they really are preserved as an upgraded pathways from a kind of derelict state, it's where there's communities that want to link up and I think that's really important. A fantastic use of these derelict railway lines as cycle paths and footpaths to link communities. It seems to me that the ones that have been lost into the landscape, the communities that they once served, there are better routes 
now to link up these communities so huge amount of of old railways are now footpaths to be honest it's a testament to the good routes that they once were they are the most direct routes between communities and you know there was this huge closure of the railways in the late 1960s which i think was the death knell for a lot of um, communities certainly as we mentioned before scottish borders suffered greatly as a result of the loss of the railways and certainly towns around every part of the country including east lothian there are certain communities that would were cut off essentially and uh, weren't able to grow and develop as a result so it started with your family interest about a railway your dad your granddad your brother you came to kokenzi started digging around getting to know what was happening and you thought something needs to happen here and basically we can say that the project started over the pint discussion what is it that makes that place special to you and others who build it where we're standing now just outside the our little museum that we created in Kikenzi. We originally acquired the building in order to have a workshop to build this replica wagon that we're also standing next to. We wanted to figure out how these wagons worked and through all the research we came up with a design which was as close as we could to the the originals that would have been on this line. And through having this building we kept having people from the local community popping in to see what we were up to. By that time we had a lot of additional stuff that was quite worth showing off because we'd done a little bit of archaeology by then and we'd found various things that we wanted and have an exhibition to show people. So the workshop has now morphed into a mini museum. We've done a lot of archaeology now so we've got we've got a lot of artifacts to show off and really using those finds from archaeological digs and the research we've done to tell the story of the wagonway and how it affected the communities because it really is the story because it's linked to the coal industry and the salt industry it really is the story of or a big part of why these communities and these towns here are the size they are and how they developed and the social history relating to that it's a community story but through this birth of the industrial age in Scotland which is intrinsically linked with the communities in this corner of East Lothian. How were the community then? How would you describe them? Yeah, I would say hardy, resilient, because these industries were not easy industries to work in. And for a long time, the people working in these industries were basically bound to their jobs. You know, it's one step away from slavery. So they were very, very tough people. And I think many of the families that are living in Kikenzi today are descendants of these tough, resilient people. And it's probably times like this that we're seeing that again, that desire to help each other out and survive. This is Just Stories podcast. I am Marzana Farana Sherlock and I meet with people to find out about stories and places that are part of their history. I seek random stories told by random people. Today, Ed Bethune takes us on a journey alongside the oldest railway in Scotland. We discover some images and pictures that haven't changed that much and you can see it in the Wagonway Museum in Kokenzie, East Lothian, Scotland. We're looking at the end of West Harbour Road just next to... We've got a modern building, CFA Archaeology on one side, we've got a house on the other side and straight in front of us we're looking across to the pier next to the sea. We've got little boats floating around in the harbour. Chap working on his boat on the quayside there as well uh, and the road curving round past the harbour. A modern scene but with uh, the old quayside in it. So what I'm going to get you to do now is we're standing just at the end of West Harbour Road before the museum's just behind us. The harbour is on the other side and if we look at that image of the harbour that's there with us now hold that in your memory and then we'll go and have a look at a photograph and then I'll take you back to 1854. Very very rare photographs and possibly the earliest photographs of a railway in operation ever taken. Oh wow. So that's just where we were looking wasn't it? Yeah. Exactly the same scene as we were seeing, quayside in the background, 
But then we've got this tipping devices here. There's another one over on the right hand side. And where we were standing looking at the salt pans, there used to be a building there. And that was probably a salt pan building too. And in the foreground, this chap sitting on a massive pile of chains. A couple of children there as well. Big, big ropes and a boat floating in the harbour. It's not so very different in the background. One of the wagons. So that's one picture. Here's another one. This is where we just walked around. And this is where the modern road comes down here now. Look at the size of the boats in the harbour. And a paddle steamer as well. And this chap in the top hat. We believe it's Hugh Francis Caddle, who was part of the wealthy family in the 19th century that owned the Kackenzie house and all the salt pans and the coal and the coal mines. And he obviously looks every inch the Victorian industrialist. His top hat, uh, just the same as Brunel. There's famous pictures of uh, Brunel with his top hat. And then this one again, a wagon with a horse ready to take it back up the hill. These two photographs were found in amongst a collection of photographs at Kackenzie house around the corner, who we work with quite a lot on various projects. So we were able to display these two pictures in the museum. My words can tell a story, but these pictures give you the feel for what it was like when it was a busy industrial harbour. This is Just Stories podcast. Today we are in Kokenzi, Islothian, where we are visiting the Wagonway Project and Museum. You can see here not only the remains of the oldest railway in Scotland, but also bricks that tell stories of the old buildings. You can get to know how the community is involved in the project and... You can see the replica of the wagon that used to bring coal from Tranent to Kokenzi. We will try to move the wagon and check how hard the work was in the 18th century. In my opinion, places like that are really important for the communities to thrive and have opportunity to meet. When you opened, do you remember any particular conversations that somebody might have come and presented their memories or the stories that were passed about the railway? One of the things that we get on a regular basis is people popping in with their own little part of the story that we don't know yet. And they say, oh, my granddad had these things in the attic and here they are. Would you like them? Put them in a display case and they've got some snippets of information that add to the story. So right from the start, we've had people coming in, either offering us information or offering us items to put in the museum. And that's just an ongoing process. It's hard to put a finger on one particular because there's been so many. And we're very grateful for that, obviously. In fact, the last thing that was handed in was a rope ladder and a pair of trousers from 18... 90 or something like that crusty old pair of trousers but they're of the time you know this was found in an attic around the corner and that's you know it's a kind of light-hearted example but there's been loads and the community have actually really got involved with it as a membership organization we've now got 70 or 80 members all subscribing to the project and helping us keep going that's kind of support that is really crucial for the project and of course just people dropping in we get people we're on the john muir way here so we get people walking the coast want a wee bit of history along the way pop in here you know it's as simple as that it's free to get in people love just even a five minute look around and they find out something they didn't know before it starts with conversation and people coming together what would be the plans if the pandemic hasn't happened we had some very big plans for 2020 in 2019 june 2019 we did an exploratory archaeological dig further up the hill to the south towards Chenent, just where the wagonway crosses the pressing pans battlefield and what we found there was we'd done a bit of research to find the most unspoiled part of the line so we dug down below the 
the footpath and about a metre under the surface we found the remnants of the wooden railway which is very very rare to find these things. One or two good examples being found in England over the last couple of decades and we found the remains of the very decayed remains of the wooden rails and a cobbled horse track between the rails because it was horses that used to pull the, the wagons back up the hill. So we found this fantastic archaeology in 2019 and the plan was to go back in for a larger scale dig and that was obviously all put on hold. I mean that find in 2019 was was voted in the archaeological community in Scotland as one of the top five finds in the whole of Scottish archaeology that year. It was a great achievement for us. It opened the opportunities for finding out a bit more about how it was constructed and adding to the archaeological knowledge of how these early railways were constructed and this is a, a kind of a discovery of national importance in that regard so we had planned to go back in in April 2020 and that was obviously all shelved at that point so it's really frustrating however it doesn't mean that we can't do it in the future once the pandemic is calmed down or over we should be able to get back out and do some some archaeology up on the wagonway itself again another project which had to be put on hold was we were in the process of consolidating the last remaining ruin of the salt pan building around the corner on the coast so that had to be put on hold as well so that is probably the first thing we'll get going once we're able to because there's an old building that needs a little bit more archaeology and then tart it up for want of a better term in order that the community can understand what it is and the idea is to use the little ruin as a kind of rest stop off the John Muir way where people can take a breather and learn a little bit of history while they're there with some interpretation that we're going to install so there's a couple of things that have been put on hold which now we're going to press on with as soon as we possibly can but obviously like everybody we're just we're waiting for good news at the moment hopefully the good news will come sooner than later going back to something you said when you were doing the archaeological stuff for somebody who has no idea when the tracks were closed or shut off was it that additional layers of soil were put on it how did it happen there's two things that happen if you put something on the ground and then leave it for 50 years 100 years gradually it will get covered over by wind-blown sand and earth and material and it'll gradually get overgrown that's what's happening at Kakenzie harbour a lot of the stuff that we uncovered even a few years ago on the quayside is now being covered over again by organic material and that's fine because it protects it it's all good further up the hill what actually happened when the wooden railway was decommissioned and they upgraded the line to an iron railway a bit more like what we have today. Instead of wooden sleepers or concrete sleepers like we have today, these were separate stone sleepers that these rails were bolted into. What they needed for that was a really, this is a 1815, what they needed for that was a really solid track bed to build onto. Essentially what they did was they had this wooden railway which was probably quite badly decayed by then and it was already in a fairly solid track bed. Rather than ripping all that up, the archaeologists told us it was deliberately made up on top with additional soil and clay and track bed material and then the new version of the wagon we laid on the top. So essentially what in their engineering of this nice smooth incline up the hill, they had a nice even slope for the new railway. In engineering that, they sealed the wooden railway underneath for us to find a couple of hundred years later. That's bonus for us. And that was the hunch we were working on when we put in this exploratory trench and in the section. You cut the pit into the ground and in the section on the side you can see the layers and then from that you can deduce how events took place 200 years ago when they built the new railway. Was the process of building railway complicated? 
at that stage. Back then it was less complicated than it is today. Obviously we've got health and safety now and I imagine a few people injured themselves back in the day. But essentially there was a method to it and it was technology. The basic principles remain the same. You need a solid base to put your railway on so that it doesn't slide away on one way or the other. The one disadvantage they had was at that point in history they decided that using unconnected separate stone sleepers on either side of the line was the way to go. They thought these big stone blocks it's going to be the most solid railway that we can possibly make. If you think about sleepers the way we've got them today they span the whole width of the track and the two rails sit on one sleeper and that stops them going sideways so what you ended up happening with these separate stone sleepers was that they could subside and move and you would end up the trains dropping between the tracks and things as the as the rails moved so that technology didn't actually last very long but it was what they used at one stage here and it's what we find on the on the quayside at Kikenzi at the harbour we find these stone sleepers built into the quayside and those ones didn't hadn't moved anywhere because they're built into this solid stone structure but further up the hill I would imagine they they did have some problems in that regard so the technology they were thinking about it but they hadn't got it quite right at that stage but the earlier wooden railway believe it or not they actually did have sleepers that are more like the ones today and so they tried out different things and it didn't always work. That sounds like a hard work and also just imagining the guy who was maneuvering the brakes on the wagon going down here. How did they get the wagons up here? So if you imagine that each wagon when it's fully laden with coal weighs a couple of tons and then unloads at the bottom so you've got these empty wagons they're quite light by now they'll tow about four or five of them up with a couple of horses attached on the front so this is the age before steam engines and all the rest of it so it's a horse-drawn wagonway or tramway so yeah a couple of horses and there's actually the same technology was still being used in the 1960s there's a railway in wales a slate railway where there's actually you can find some video footage of it online where there were exactly the same technology was still being used in the 20th century because in certain circumstances it's cheaper and better than a steam engine you know we're standing in front of the wagon can you describe it to somebody who can't see it and then can we see how it yeah, moves we'll, yeah we'll move it along, yeah. <laughs> yeah so essentially it's almost entirely made of wood it's about eight foot long by about three foot wide big wooden cart style wheels and fill the top with coal big lumps of coal it's a very very simple wooden cart essentially these wheels that we've got on it at the moment they are flat wheels on the surface because we need to roll it around on the road we haven't got a railway to roll it on if we had wooden rails we would have a flange on the inside of each wheel in order that it grips onto the railway just like railways today so whenever we rebuild our wooden wagonway at some point in the future we'll make a new set of wheels for this and then we can have a go at at running it down a hill and uh, trying to control the speed with the brake we'll see how that goes it's a fun item it looks very different to anything you'll see today and when people come past and see it they really should be watching the road, but they're watching the wagon, you know. When you rebuild it, will people be able to learn how to brake and how to drive the wagon? Or have you not yeah, thought be, about be, that? I, I think, yeah, if we can get around the safety implications of this, then we'll certainly be able to let people have a shot. But I think, you know, in 2022, so next year, um, it'll be 300 years exactly since the railway was built. We're planning, hopefully, a few events around that. Whether we've got a railway, any stretch of wagonway built by then, I don't know, but we'll certainly give it a go, I think. Can we see how it worked? Yeah, so if we walk round to this side, you'll notice in this little bit of the side we've got a coal shovel and a pick, just to give a bit of idea about what this was for. This side we've got the brake. I've got a little wooden chock that I'll just rest under the brake, and that takes the brake pad off the wheel, and essentially it rolls that easily.
sort of creaky and groany. We'll move it back the other way just now. We'll There's a wee flavour of the type of sound. I think, imagine if it was rumbling down a steep incline, then it would be a, a bit louder than that. But it's just kind of creaky, groany. And it, but even for us, just moving this around, and we've done some reenactments with the Battle of Preston Pans chaps as well. Just moving it around, we get dressed up in 18th century costume as well sometimes. It's a bit of fun, but it really gives you a feel for how it would have been back in the day. The whole point of this project is a lot of fun, and everything we do should be fun because otherwise people won't get involved. Building a wagon and then using it and showing people what it would have been like it seems to strike a chord with people because it's a thing that you can come touch you can see you can see somebody moving and you can actually realize how hard work it was it was very hard work and i think i mean it's the same when we do the salt making days the smells and the the sounds of that are very evocative as well and it i think when people see the amount of steam which comes off the salt pan and it's the same with the wagon it's like a window into the past before i started this project i couldn't have imagined what a wagon on the wagonway looked like through the research um, and various sources we've found we've managed to come up with something which we believe is pretty authentic it's so different there's there's modern cars parked around and then there's this crusty old wooden wagon with cup filled with coal with a pick and a shovel stuck in the side. It's the project encapsulated in one item, I think. Can you imagine life without a railway? For yourself, without that involvement? Not now. <laughs> no, it's kind of, you know, I've got a full-time job as well. This is like another one on top of that. It's more than worth it. I would encourage anyone that's got even the slightest interest in any sort of social history around here to come down and have a look around because there really is something for everybody. It's not just about the railway, it's about the salt pans, it's about the coal mines, it's about the wealthy family that lived in the big house around the corner. There's all sorts of stories attached to the wagonway and even just the way people lived. The archaeological digs we've done, we've found baby food bottles from the 1930s and things like this. There's uh, cobblestones that were from somebody's pathway there's pieces of glass from the old glass works here there's just so many items that we found that just give the picture of how it was to live and sometimes it's things that indicate wealth and sometimes it's things that indicate poverty as well on the latter note there's a on one of the digs we found a butchery slab inside what would have been somebody's kitchen and people were butchering meat in their kitchen there was big score marks across it and we found piles of cut up cow bones when we did a bit of research into that it transpired that in the very early 20th century there was a period of poverty which resulted in people doing illegal butchery of meat inside their houses and we think this is what we've found on that particular occasion and it's just the more we dig and the more we do the research we're building up this picture of life 100 years ago 200 years ago 300 years ago and there's always more to find and that's what's so compelling about about the project i freely admit i'm totally addicted to it now so i think i'll be doing this for a long time if not forever Thank you Ed, so much. I've learned a lot and what fascinates me is that that railway was a link and it was a link between two communities around the coal, around the salt, but also then it turned into a link between communities even nowadays when people can come and discuss what's happening here. So thanks a lot for your time. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed the trip down memory lane. 
When talking to Ed, I could imagine how life looked hundreds of years ago and how important the railway was in the life of a small community in Scotland. Ed's passion and knowledge about the rail made the experience very enjoyable and I also now have tried the salt produced in Kokenzie on my chips. It's really worthwhile and I can't wait till the project is open to the public as I definitely will take part in the salt production workshops. This was the sixth episode of Just Stories Podcast. Thank you for listening. You can tune in to Just Stories Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean platform. In the next episode, we will meet Barbara McKenzie, East Lothian artist who knows the secret to choosing a good painting and how to order Turkey's favorite drink. See you in two weeks.